Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Go-to-market leaders need help too, you know. And you can learn from some of the very best at Compete Week 2023, powered by our friends over at Clue. Go-to-market leaders from ClickUp, HubSpot, Lacework, and more will be taking the virtual stage November 8th and 9th, sharing the tactics, tips, and strategies they're using every single day to bring their solution to market, and most importantly, knock their competitors out of the competition altogether. Two days of nonstop, industry-leading Compete content, all at Compete Week 2023. You can register today for free at competeweek.com. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I was thrilled to have on someone who truly embodies the spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation. Born and raised in Nashville, Brian Clayton started his first business at the young age of 13, mowing lawns in his neighborhood. He eventually built that into Peachtree, a landscaping company that grew to become one of the largest in Tennessee, generating over $10 million a year in revenue. After a successful exit with Peachtree, he co-founded GreenPal, an online platform and marketplace that's been dubbed the Uber for lawn care. With over 200,000 active users and thousands of transactions per day, GreenPal is a bootstrapped success story, doing over $30 million a year in annual revenue. There was so much I loved about this conversation. We discussed what business school can't teach you about growing a business, how building a business can feel like playing a video game at times, the benefits of bootstrapping a business and tactically how to exit, why firsthand experience with the core problem is critical as a founder, and he leaves us with a simple equation for success. Success equals results minus expectations. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm excited to have you on. Devin, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. So you are, you're in Nashville, is that right? That's right. Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised. Very nice. So yeah, can you take us back to those early days in Nashville? Um, Obviously at this point, our listeners will have heard a snippet around your career and how you've started multiple companies. You seem to be an entrepreneur in, you know, at heart. So yeah, take us back to the early days in Nashville and what got your interest uh, or sparked your interest in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'm first off, very lucky to have been able to grow up in Middle Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, because the area has been thriving for the last 20 or 30 years. So I think if you're starting a small business, if you can be part of a growing, vibrant community, that can almost like put the wind at your back almost. And so that's that was one of the very lucky things for me getting started. I actually, I, I didn't like start my, my own business because I wanted to. I was forced into it. I was forced into entrepreneurship by my father when I was uh, like 14 years old. He got, got sick and tired of watching me play a Super, Mar- Super Mario Kart all day. And so he said, hey, get off your butt. I've got a gig for you. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. Made me go cut the neighbor's grass. And, and uh, he negotiated the price and, and, and I got paid 20 bucks for like an hour of work. And that was awesome. Uh, something that like just clicked the moment I made that money. 
and without having to like hassle my folks for, for cash or anything like that. And so I, I thought, this is awesome. I'm just going to keep doing this. And I passed out some flyers all over the neighborhood. And by the end of that first summer, I, I had like 10 or 12 customers that I was mowing grass for and just stuck with that little lawn mowing business through high school and through college. And uh, when I graduated college, um, I had maybe five employees and, and was, was doing around a half million dollars a year in sales in the landscaping business. And I thought, well, maybe this could be my lane. Maybe I can make a big business out of this. And so I made a little business plan and, and over a 15 year period of time, ended up building that little lawn mowing business into a real company around 150 employees eventually and, and 8 million a year in revenue. And, uh, and then sold it. It got acquired by a national company in 2013. And so growing that business just from me and a push mower to me and 150 people, I learned a lot of the block and tackling of getting a business going and was able to roll all of that into my second business, which is GreenPal. And GreenPal is a marketplace that works like Uber or DoorDash or Instacart, but for lawn care services. Yeah. Can't wait to jump into some of those details. We we chatted earlier about marketplace and the dynamics of a marketplace and where do you put your focus given, you know, the two sides. So looking forward to chatting about that. So again, you started this when you were, I guess, 13, is that right? Yeah. 14, 13, 14 years old. And that was obviously you, you probably didn't have the same sort of company structure at that point. Were you calling it Peachtree at that point? Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I, I, I called it quality lawn care. <laughs> and so, and so that was the name I came up with. Uh, and in my own defense, I, I, I did take pride in the work that I did. And, and so it was a quality service. And, and, uh, but when I, when I went to, when I went to business school, I took a class in branding and I thought, well, uh, you know, I think I can beat the competition by just doing a more professional, more thorough job of running a professional business. Because at that time, it was, it was it was very much like a like the, a type of industry that wasn't very sophisticated, I guess you could say. And so the competition was very much Chuck in a truck and Peter in a pickup. And I thought if I could build like a company with a nice brand and a consistent branding and a and a uh, a more professional image, then then I could really build something valuable. And I remember I took a took a trip to Atlanta one time just to go to Six Flags with a friend of mine. And I saw peach tree everywhere. And I thought, man, that's a cool, it's a cool name. Maybe that'll be what I call my landscaping company. So I did. And it just stuck. And it, and it ended up, it ended up uh, we ended up growing one of the larger landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee. Um, maybe one of the largest in Nashville. And so a lot of it was branding. A lot of it was um, applying big systems thinking to this small little humble landscaping business and trying to operate at a, at a higher level than my competitors were in the space. So can you drill down into um, what are some of the the tactical challenges you face growing that business? And also, how did you, how did you continue to work through high school and college? Like I, there must've been off periods, I suppose. It was, it really was challenging balancing and juggling all the, all of the, you know, going, going through college and business school while growing a business was, was kind of fun because I was learning things in business school and applying them to what I was doing in the landscaping business. And there was also a lot of disconnect. Um, it was almost weird growing this business and, and, and running it 
and then learning things in business school that just didn't 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 apply. You know, like I would I would say that in a marketing class, that's not how you market a business. You you market a business this way, or like in a in a business operations class, like that's not you know that doesn't make any sense for my little business. So it was it was strange in that way, but. But uh, I went to school at night, so so <laughs> all day would mow yards, and then and then I would go to night class. My my I bet my my uh, classmates hated me because I smelled like gasoline and cut grass, and I was dirty and and like <laughs> underneath my chair. I remember I'd look down; it'd be grass clippings everywhere from where I sat for three hours. <laughs> so it was very humbling, but it was just kind of what I had to do because I really had a chip on my shoulder. I, I really wanted to prove that I could grow a big business in, in that industry. And, and I, and I really wanted to see it, see it through. And so it almost, it was hard work, but it almost didn't feel that way. Cause it really was almost like a video game. It really felt like I was working through levels of the game. And, and I looked at my trucks on the road and properties I was acquiring and things like that almost as like a monopoly board. And, and, um, that part of it was fun. And, and, and the city was growing around my business. So there was always new opportunities to pick up new clients because a new apartment complex would be built or a new shopping center or a new neighborhood. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it, it was, it was very doable because there was all kinds of opportunity around me. So in a business like that, where you know, operate in a space that's familiar to buyers, right? It's not like you're convincing them they need this. They know it's the service they need. They go, they search for it. Maybe they get references. How do you, or how did you position Peachtree to win against your competitive set and like either tactical things? Like did SEO drive drive business for you? Like, I guess, walk us through that. It uh, It's a very challenging business in the sense of it's, it's very hyper-competitive. So the barriers to entry are very low. Anybody can get started and be your competitor for about 500 bucks of equipment, and, and they're off and running, and then they can compete with you. <clears throat> so that makes it challenging. But it also is an opportunity to differentiate yourself in terms of offering solutions that your competitors are not. And so I guess it was year four or five that I realized that I actually wasn't in the lawn care business at all. I wasn't in the landscaping business at all. I was in the sales business. I was in the sales systems business. I was in the, 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 the business of connecting people that needed what we did with our services and, and getting them to understand why it was more important to choose us than, than a competitor. We, we stumbled on this one time when we went to a, uh, a community association meeting with apartment complexes uh they had they had a uh like a trade group <clears throat> and they would they gave this big and we would go there to try to like develop contacts and develop uh develop leads and develop prospects and they had this big presentation on the the occupancy rate for apartment complexes in nashville and and they would say you know the occupancy rate is 93 percent, and you know they would give tips on on how to how to increase that rate and I like I had a light bulb moment where I thought, you know, if if these if some of these property managers would think about how they could enhance their landscaping, uh, you know, around the model of the apartment, around the entryway to to help boost occupancy rates, then then that could be something that we could like change the conversation around. And so we started to mm-hmm. do that. And so we would go to property managers and property owners in in the multifamily space, and we'd say, Hey, listen, what is your occupancy rate? And they would say, Uh, eighty eight percent. Why do you ask? 
well, we were at the meeting last week, you know, with the National Apartment Association, and they say it's ninety three percent is is the average, and and we believe that we can help move you up a couple points if we install this floral display around the model, if we redo the landscaping around the entrance sign, if we just kind of invest in some in some in some landscaping assets to help you move up in occupancy, and that changed the whole conversation from hey, I can save you money on your landscaping contract too. I can help you get where you're trying to go. And that kind of theme of connecting what we did with what our customers were trying to do in business, where they were trying to go, applied to every segment, um, You know, whether it be multifamily or, or financial services. We did a lot of banks. Um, we ended up doing a lot of, a lot of restaurants and, and fast food restaurants. And so we would connect their... Uh, their their super size, you know, McDonald's ended up being a big customer of ours. So we would we would pitch them on, hey, we believe we can help you increase more sales through the drive through through apple pies or supersizing if we pick up the cigarette butts in the drive through every time. And here's before and after pictures and so on. So that really kind of changed how we how we built our sales system and how we approach sales and how we connected what we did with what our customers ultimately were trying right. to do also. That's yeah, smart. So you, you got connected in the ecosystem. You learned about what they care about from a right. broader business macro standpoint and what are the metrics you can actually help them with, not just the commodity, well, it's a service I need, you know, Peachtree can do it, check. No, you're different. Right. You know what they care about in terms of growing their business and how you might help them. So it's like an and ROI so, story as well. And, and my job as the founder was to tune and innovate and operate and improve that sales process that everything around delivering landscaping services was table stakes. And so a lot of small business owners in home services or landscaping services or construction, they over optimize and over index on the delivery of the service. And, and they, and they, and they say, well, what separates us is because we do quality work. We show up on time. We do what we say we're going to do. We have integrity we have matching t-shirts and <laughs> nobody cares about any of that stuff. Of course they expect all those things. Those are, those are right. table stakes. And so um, you got to break out of that. You have to build the systems and processes to deliver that stuff uh, consistently and at a quality level. And then you, you work on how do you connect that with the people that, that, that are looking to, to, that need those services. And so right. everything, you know, for five years, all I did was, was, was work that sales process and make it better and better and better. And it worked. You grew the company to eight million in revenue. I think you mentioned, and ultimately you sold it. I would love to hear what was going through your mind during that process. Did this company, I believe, lose the holdings? Did they reach out to you, or were you already thinking about selling the business? Yeah, ideally, when you're looking to sell your your small business, like I was, you work an exit plan. You, you, you build a five-year game plan and you begin with the end in mind, which is, you know, I want to sell this business for this price, at, at, you know, around this date. And then you kind of work backwards and then you do all the things you need to do to get there. There's a great book uh, about this called Built to Sell. And that book is like, is just, is just a, the Bible on <laughs> what you need to do to sm- sell a small business like I was doing. Well, I did none of that. I, I ran the business, um, through, through just sheer will and hard work and flying by the seat of my pants and shooting from the hip for 15, for 13 years. And it was a lifestyle business and it was a profitable one. And it afforded me a a nice lifestyle. 
uh, but something hit me about year 13 where I was just very discontent. Uh, I did not enjoy running the business anymore. And a lot of it was because I was no longer evolving and growing as a founder. For the first 13 years, every year, I was growing into a whole new person. And if you're running a business with everything you have, with all of your intensity, it will force you to evolve and grow into a new person every year or two. You're learning all sorts of skills, whether it be leadership, management, strategy, bookkeeping, economics, copywriting, sales systems, sales engineering, all of these things. And it's not like I reached a point where I conquered the world or anything, but I had plateaued in terms of what was required of me to continue to operate and grow the business. It wasn't like I knew everything there was to know, but I knew, I knew pretty much everything there was to know about running a landscaping business. And I, I hit a point of plateau in terms of personal growth and evolution for about two years. And, and that was unsettling to me. And it was, it was pissing me off and I couldn't figure out why. And, and I thought, well, I'm just going to try to sell this company. I went to a conference once and listened to a talk with a guy that, that, that was able to do it. Why can't I do that? And so from the moment I had that notion to the day I was able to get it finally sold was like a little over two years. And, and so it was very much a push. It was, it was, I hired a consultant and a, and a rep to help me shop the business and get it ready to sell. And, and, and what I came to understand was I didn't have any of the, of the real systems I needed, the key people I needed in place um, to get the business acquired because nobody wants to buy a business that's not running like a well-oiled machine. And so I had to take the business almost down to the studs and rebuild it from the inside out to get it to a point where it could be sold. And it was, the weird thing was by the time I did all that, I almost fell in love with it all over again because it was a, it was a series <laughs> of challenges. While none of them were fun to do, it's like a lot of these things that are hard that we don't want to do ultimately make us feel fulfilled in a weird way. We hate, you know, you know, right. I, I, you know, I don't want to like train and run a marathon, but if, if I, you know, if I ever did that again, I would feel f- pretty damn fulfilled by doing that. And, and so that was like what getting that business f- groomed for sale was. And so, but then I get got it acquired and, and helped with the transition that took about six months. And then, and then like this melancholy set in because now, now there was no reason to get out of bed in the morning. There, there was no, like, like if I, if it wasn't for me, then what? My business is always the answer to that question. And now that was gone. If it wasn't for me, nothing really. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, it, maybe I'm doing some investing and stuff, but none of that's of, of any serious consequence. And so I thought, well, I need another project. I really don't want to run a landscaping business all over again because that was really hard. But maybe I could start a software company because that'll be so much easier. Uh, that, that'll be like a, a simple <laughs> thing. I watched the movie The Social Network, and that looks like fun and exciting. And and they built a they built a platform that reached a million users in in a year. I, I think I can I can do that. And so it was it was very much naivete as an asset. But had the idea for GreenPal, recruited two co-founders, and and I got back in the trenches all over again. So I mean, it's smart because you took what you're an expert in. You built a business on the services side, servicing the same industry. And I'm sure you recognize that there was an opportunity for software to make this more efficient, or, or I guess, what was the hypothesis initially behind this? Ideally, when you're inventing a new product, authenticity is a competitive advantage. You've experienced the problem. You know the problem. You've seen it. You've lived it. You know the pain. 
and you know where technology can help solve it. And so for me, that that was the only thing my team and I had going for us was that I spent 15 years in the industry and had observed firsthand how broken the whole industry runs. And, and so I saw this every day running, running Peachtree was, was that you know, we, as we grew the business, like I was mentioning earlier, we sold into hundred thousand dollar contracts. We didn't do residential services anymore. We didn't do your basic 35, $45 lawn mowing, but the company was putting out like 90 trucks on the road every day all over middle Tennessee. And so if you were at an intersection, there was a 50, 50 chance you were going to see a peach tree truck. And, and so people would see that number on the side of the truck and they would call us and say, Hey, saw your crew right around the corner from where I live. Will you, uh, come swing by and, and, uh, and come mow my yard for, for 30 bucks. And we would have to kindly tell them that no, we don't do that type of work. We don't do residential work anymore, but here's five names and phone numbers of people that do. And so we would, we would refer them out to smaller operators because we had a value in how we ran that business to always try to be helpful no matter what you never know. And so, and so we did that. And then, and then the, a lot of times the people would call us back. And I mean, we we had 80, 90, hundred of these phone calls a day. And a lot of times the people would call us back and say, I called all five of those phone numbers only two returned my phone call. One promised to come out and give me a price. And, and he flaked on me and ghosted on me. So now I don't like, do you have any other names and phone numbers? And so we saw like what a pain in the pain in the ass this was for consumers. And so when I sold the business, you know, I knew that that was a broken, that was a broken thing that needed to be solved. And at the time, you know, Airbnb was just getting going. Uber was just getting going. And so this idea that software is no longer just bits, it's also atoms. It can connect, it can make atoms move in the real world, uh, was, was being validated. And, And you saw evidence that these, that these sorts of platforms could work. And I thought, well, I was fairly confident that somebody was going to build a platform to make it just as easy as pushing a button. Why couldn't that be me? And uh, and recruited two co-founders. And we started working on the idea. The first steps you took are actually really interesting to me. Obviously, finding co-founders makes sense. But next, you decided to self-fund this. And, you know, your, with your background with your industry expertise, building and selling a business in the space, you could have probably raised a, a pre-seed seed round to get your product off the ground quicker, but you decided not to do that. Um, and you've been profitable, I think, since your first year. So I guess I would love to hear, why did you make that decision? Do you regret it? What, what's your thinking there? It was a few factors. To your point, that's that's what we initially intended to do. We intended to go down the path of raising a round of angel funding and a series A, B, C, and so on. And that stalled out really quickly. First off, like building this business was very like jarring for me as a, as a founder, because uh, for 15 years, I ran a, a multi-million dollar company and, and it was actually doing 10 million a year in re- revenue, or I meant to say eight figures, mm. but so it was, it was doing $10 million a year wasn't like a huge gigantic business, but it was a pretty good business and it was, and it was super profitable. And I sold yeah. it. And, and the, the guy that bought the business was this real arrogant dude who was worth about a hundred million dollars. 
And he, he, uh, after we got it done, he sat down in my former office with me and he said, can I give you some advice? And I thought, yeah, sure. Anytime somebody who's worth nine figures wants to give you some free advice, you take it. And, and so he said, all of the money you just made, and that really just like haunted me. It made me really scared because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to ever, I didn't ever want to pick up a weed eater ever again. I didn't ever want to pick up cigarette butts in a drive-through of a McDonald's ever again. I didn't ever want to like go backwards. And so I took every dime I made from the sale of that business and just bought, bought things I couldn't screw up. I bought single family homes, real estate, and paid cash for all of it. And, and so I was like poor all over again, a cash poor. And I had, I had cash flow, but then I was just plowing that back into more real estate. And so, so I never had a whole lot of cash. And so I did that. So I knew that I couldn't screw that up and I wouldn't have to go backwards. So all of that to say, it's not like I had this big war chest that I could plow into building green pal. I only earmarked about about fifty or sixty thousand dollars for it, and my two co-founders matched that. And so we we raised between the three of us a hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars, and that's all we had. And I, I did that for two reasons: one, I didn't really know what I was doing; I didn't want to go backwards; and two, I wanted the 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 product and the idea to kind of sing for its supper. I wanted it to be able to 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 prove that it was worthwhile without throwing a bunch of money at it. Because necessity really is the the mother of invention. And so that's how we did it. But we we wasted all of that money. We we spent all of that money, that hundred fifty grand that we got between the three of us. We we paid a development shop to build the first version, and and uh, that took eight months, and that was a big failure. Like it, it didn't have the features it needed, and it was clunky and buggy. And so we had to teach ourselves how to code teach ourselves how to write, how to, how to write software. And, and, and because we didn't have any money, we had to build it ourselves the second time, which was the way we should have done it the first time. And so there was, there was all of that. And then, and then I dabbled into the idea of, of like hoofing it around Nashville to, to raise an angel round of of funding. I took a few meetings and and I thought, man, I'm going to have to like do a hundred of these meetings just to grovel over like a, 10 or 15,000, maybe if I'm lucky, a $25,000 seed check. And I thought, this is just not worth my time. Like I need to, I need to build something that'll do an angel round every month is what I need to do. And, and mm. I felt fairly confident that I could do it. And so I just, we just went to work on the product and we just went to work rather than like running all over town, begging people for money. We just, we just went to work on the product and, and tried to build something that customers liked. Took a longer that took a lot longer than I thought it was going to take, but in the end, that was the right way to do it. Now, if 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 like Doc rolls up in the DeLorean outside and says, "Jump in, we're going back to 2013," the first thing I would do, other than buying a bunch of Bitcoin, would be to raise an <laughs> angel round of funding. Like that would be the first thing I would do, because with a bunch of money, I could do in a year what took me ten. Because I now know all of the things to do. At the time, I didn't know any of this stuff. And so if you had given me $5 million, I just would have pissed it all away. And this kind of like proved out in in venture capital in those years. There were there was a lot of Uber for X ideas. There there was a lot there was yeah. Uber for home cleaning, Uber for laundry service. And a lot of these companies like crashed and burned because they had too much money. And so it, it worked out for us. 
Yeah, no, you're seeing a lot of those stories now with the companies that are in growth stage. So they're securing, you know, series C, D, E, F, like they're, it's it's difficult. They're, they're completely um, re-looking at their valuations. And in some cases, some of these companies aren't valued at the total dollar figure that they've raised to date. It's insane. Um, and so a lot, lot of yeah. cram down rounds but now, where, 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 where these poor founders dreams are up in smoke and what kind of hell would that be? You, you put a decade of your heart and soul into something. You do what you think you're supposed to do. You follow the Silicon Valley pay, playbook. You raise a bunch of money and now you literally don't have anything to show for it. You are washed out and you, you, you have to start all over again. Yeah. I think the, you know, the ideal is you have enough backing either personally, like you have, you don't need a war chest, but you need the ability to say, I'm going to give this thing a shot for six to 12 months, build an MVP with some money. Ideally, you get some co-founders and you find very early product market fit and you have signals that say, I'm pretty confident this thing can work. Now I can have capital to accelerate the growth. That makes sense. But there are a bunch of companies over the last five years that have raised a ton of money on an idea before an MVP was built, before any sort of customers were there and before any product market fit was, was figured out. And that's where there was a problem. But so I think in hindsight, I, I hear you that you probably do things differently, but um, it seems to have worked out really nicely. Now you have over 200,000 active users, I believe, and you have thousands of transactions per day. So you're doing quite well. I'd love to hear... I, I referred to this in the beginning, you're building a marketplace. And so therefore you have the supply side of the business and then you have the demand side of the business and building a marketplace is really tough. It's hard to figure out where your focus is. I used to work at Etsy and a big part of what I learned there was that that focus change and changes and evolves over time. And I was there while a shift occurred from focusing on the supply side, the sellers of their business and pivoted more toward building a buying experience for various reasons. And it was very successful in that pivot. But yeah, I guess how, how have you focused building the company, balancing, focusing on supply versus demand? Yeah, it's always a, a ping pong back and forth. It's always, and like in marketplaces, are, are, marketplaces use SaaS tools, a SaaS enabled marketplace. You have to have tools on both sides of the transaction, but they're very different from SaaS products. A SaaS product, you just, is a much more straightforward sales process uh, and it's very linear from one end to the other. Whereas a marketplace, you're almost like a, you're almost like a, a gardener. You're almost like a, like a, like a farmer. Let me, let me cultivate over here and see what happens. And then, and then I'm going to come back in six months and see how that affected the whole ecosystem of what's going on in this marketplace. Because you don't really know if, if you change this thing over here, how it's going to piss off the other side of the transaction or, or make them happy or, or, or what's going to happen. So it's a, it's a never ending experiment and you're, you're ping ponging back and forth uh, between the wants and needs of, of buyers and sellers. For us, we tend to skew onto the supplier side. We, we maybe 60, 40, we are really in the business for one thing. The only, the only reason why I get out of bed in the morning is to help, pros that make their living in this industry make more money with less headache and improve their livelihood. And if we can do that, then we can deliver a delightful service for consumers. It starts with that mission. 
It starts with if you make a living in this in this business, how do we get you a hundred customers in your in your first year, and how do we get you to where you can take home six figures a year, working eight months out of the year? And that's 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 our mission. And the kind of the disposition is, this is a platform and organization of professionals. We're we're here. You can hire us. These are the rules of the game, and and this is how it works. And if it's not for you, that's fine. We don't bend over backwards and and just fulfill every query that consumers want or all of their demands. We we, we turn a lot of consumers away, and and so mm-hmm. that's and that might be my that might be my uh, my contractor background kind of kind of emphasizes how we approach the the, the chicken and egg uh, and 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 supply and demand balance is. We index on the on the supply side. We have to create the system of record for them to run their business. We have to build a way for them to improve their livelihood, and that that in, enables a very convenient Amazon like experience to hire them off the shelf. If we don't get this right, there is no there is no experience for consumers. And so, did you did you start the business first building those tools for those pros, and then pivot to? trying to build demand for them? Or how did you even bring them on the platform if you didn't have the money coming in for them, right? It's a really, really good question. So in the early days, it's like you can have that mentality that I just outlined, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're just going to build build on one side or the other. Like that could be, that's that's the vision. That's the mission. That's what we do. But in the early days, the the tooling took the opposite, uh, op, the opposite effect. It was It was very much, we we focused only on the consumer side for a very long period of time and built just the bare minimum for pros because we knew we needed to attract them to the platform to to be able to get quotes and hire and pay and so on and the way we kind of got over that especially being bootstrapped and and learning how to code while we're doing all this was i would offer free mentoring and coaching on how to grow a lawn care business and i did that for the first 500 service providers that use the platform every one of these uh pros had my cell phone number and seven days a week, I would talk to them, answered calls, text messages, 14 hours a day. I was almost like a hot, free hotline where you could hit me up for anything you needed and, and I would help you figure it out. And, and at, in exchange for that was, Hey, I've got this really crappy platform that we're trying to build and it doesn't have a lot of the tools and, and, and solutions that you need as a, as a, as a service provider yet. But I need for you to quote jobs that come through there. I need for you to to show up on the day you're supposed to, do a good job, and 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 complete the process as clunky and buggy as it might be. Because eventually we'll come back around and build all these things and make them frictionless and seamless. That was like three years. It was three years of hand cranking the marketplace in that way, and that's how we did we did the first three cities: Nashville, Atlanta, and Tampa we're done in that way. And then as we got more liquidity, got more traction, made some more money, we were able to build out a bigger development team and, and get around to building all of those systems and processes and workflows and tooling that we needed for the, the, the provider side, which by the way, were steeped all in user feedback for years. We knew exactly how they needed to be built. We knew what they wanted. We knew what they needed. We knew what they needed, what it needed to look like. It was no longer a set of assumptions. It was it was baked in actual user feedback, which made it made getting it right the first time a lot easier. Yeah, it's smart. I mean, in every instance, it seems like you're the kind of guy who chooses to do the work and learn, even though that might take longer than taking a shortcut. 
I know of no other way, especially when you're inventing a new product. I know of, I know of no other way to figure out to even know what to build until you, until you hand crank some transactions hand crank some liquidity. Um, that's a, you know, the, uh, in, there's a saying that even the first hundred s- sales that you do on a platform should be hand to hand combat. And that's how it was for us. That was the only way we knew what to build was what people were telling us. And so that's why we, we hand cranked it in that way. And, and the other thing we did is we learned from other platforms around us. I was terrified at not knowing what to do and what to build. And, and I was paranoid about that. So I would sign up and I would, I would deliver food on DoorDash. I delivered groceries on, on Instacart. I drove for Uber for six months, drove for Lyft. I, I, the, 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 the really important ones were, were wag and Rover. These are uh, platforms for dog sitting and dog care. So I would walk dogs on WAG. I would walk dogs on, on Rover. I even did pet sitting, overnight pet sitting. This was like two years of this. And it enabled me to learn how these well-funded startups in adjacent kind of verticals that were kind of solving similar problems that we were, connecting buyers and sellers in a local community-based marketplace. Yeah how they were solving problems and dealing with things. And, and, and I was able to kind of borrow and rob and steal great ideas from all of these different platforms and apply them to our humble little world of, of lawn care. I love that. It's again, another uh, example of how you just chose to, to go through kind of an arduous process and learn yourself firsthand. I think that that's, um, that's a smart approach and it's admirable for sure. So then it works. You built this marketplace. It's it's working today. What about marketing and growth channels and strategies? Like how have you once you found product market fit and you product market fit and you built a product that was working? How have you been able to kind of put fuel on the fire? What's working? We have bet the company on one channel, and and that's Google organic search, which can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Just depends on on what's going on with the Google gods in terms of algorithm changes and, and, and so on. So it was an early bet that we made because again, we were talking to customers. We would ask them, how do you normally find a, a lawn mowing service? And they would say, well, I'd ask friends and family for recommendations and, and those folks wouldn't show up or do a bad job. And then I would go to Facebook marketplace or, or whatever. And then I was Google lawn care service near me. We heard that over and over and over again. And, and so we thought, well, we'll just, we'll just try to compete at that game. And we, we, we realized however hard it was to build this product and teach ourselves how to code while building it. That was the easy part compared to now what it's going to take to compete and rank well and, and win in organic search. It's a lot harder than I thought it was ever going to be. But but we we believed that if we could just get the flywheel rolling, if we get some traction going, that that it would be worth it because like there's nothing for free. But once you get the momentum going, you do get a lot of earned traffic, and you don't have to pay for every single visitor anymore. And and we believed that that was a good strategy. And it took two years, but we finally started to increase the authority around our domain and and create the content we needed and, and, and create the recipe that we could repeat in every single city in the United States. And that we're still running that strategy today. We're 10 years in, we're a 10 year overnight success. And, and we still get 60% of people 
that come through the front door just through a good old-fashioned Google search. Lawn mowing service, Lincoln, Nebraska. Grass cutting service, uh, Peoria, Illinois. These are the, the ways that people find out about our property, and, and, and then we hook them up with a great lawn mowing service. That's a great position to be in. Um, to be doing so well in SEO when you're getting so many inbound leads, that's that's position A for sure. Well, I'd love to move now into sort of the Brian's advice section. You have obviously gone through quite a journey as an entrepreneur and, and again, getting your sort of hands dirty. Is there any advice that you um, would like to give listeners who might be thinking about striking out on their own? And I know we, we were chatting about different options of, of starting a company and growing a company, taking capital injection and when to sort of build for an MVP and learn on, on the fly. Um, yeah. Sort of what, what advice would you give? My experience has been, you know, it's still day one for us, but, but we're, we're doing pretty good. We have around 300,000 people using the app. We want to get to a million. I wouldn't be here had I not had first person knowledge, actual like tested knowledge of the problem and the solution. I see a lot of founders wanting to innovate and deliver solutions and invent products in spaces in which they have no d domain expertise. And, and I think that can be problematic because you don't know, you don't know what to innovate. You don't know what to do. And I, you know, and sometimes that knowledge is, is like your, your own worst enemy too. And so it, it can go both ways, but, but I think it can be helpful to, to live it, breathe it, experience it, and then be solving your own problem. I think if you're solving your own problem, um, then, then that can be helpful. And it, and it, it could be like, you know, maybe, maybe you, you have an Airbnb and you believe there should be some sort of software SaaS solution that Airbnb hosts need. And you live that, you know that, or, or maybe you are a dentist and you believe there should be some sort of uh, product that dentists need. I think that can be helpful. So that's, that's the first piece of advice that I'll give. Um, the, the other piece of advice is uh, a lot of times success is, is results minus expectations. And so, so <laughs> that's, that's what success is. It's like, what did we think was going to happen? What happened? And then that's how we determine whether we were successful or not. And so for me, I felt really unsuccessful for like four years starting this business because my expectations were all out of whack. I thought, I thought we would be where we are today in, in, in like 18 months. And if somebody had just sat me down and told me, he's like, no, nah, listen, it's going to take a decade to build this thing. And, and if you're doing a hundred transactions a week after 12 months, you're doing really good. And I, I wish, I wish I had that knowledge because I would have felt a lot like a lot more successful in the early days. And a lot of times getting through those first two or three years is really just about managing your own psychology and not giving up. I see a lot of founders give up too quick. They, 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 they get, they've got something going and then, and then they just give up because they, they just, it wasn't a huge overnight success. And if they just stuck it out another five years, they'd have something. And so I think if you can really like, don't set small goals that are trivial, but like set attainable goals and manage your expectations, then that will be a success. And it'll keep your momentum going to where you, then you will, you won't give up and you'll stick it out. Yeah. Sound advice. I echo both of those things. So solving your own problem, having firsthand experience, 
I went through this when I founded Fluvia. So I was a product marketer at Amazon. I was trying to grow my team. It was very hard to hire. Uh, I saw, you know, product marketers getting recruited left and right. So it was hard to retain. And I said, there's a supply demand imbalance here. I think, you know, a consulting firm could come in and solve some of this. And I searched product marketing consulting and nothing came up. And I said, well, that's, that's an idea. And I started it. And then as an investor, I do some angel investing and we have a small investment arm called Fluvia Ventures. I absolutely look at founders and their story. And if they have experience in the space they're building for, or are they just building because there's a trend, right? Like AI is an example. Everyone's trying to build some AI platform for the enterprise. It's like, there's thousands of them now. And, you know, if the founders don't have experience building or selling or, you know, engineering products like that, you just know that there's so many things that they have to uncover along the way. So firsthand experience is, is huge. And then the last thing you mentioned, founders sort of not giving up. It's going to take a while. You might, you know, you just don't know. Um, I've been thinking about this myself and I've been doing this, this tracking. I just built a Google sheet and it's um, basically my sentiment tracker. And I have dates nice. and a number one through 10, seven sentiments on the business today. Nice. And I, like I just that. fill it out. I've been doing that for like, I've been doing it for like nine months and you can start to see these trend lines. And one of the biggest things that I have taken away from doing this is you're going to feel high and you're going to feel low and you can see how quickly those things change. Yep. And it just, it's such a simple thing, but it visualizes it by just looking at nice. this chart that I create every, you know, and I update every day and it's getting me thinking on, should I build software for this? I was talking to my other friend who's a, I found a CEO of a company like we might, we should maybe do something with this. So uh, maybe this is the early announcement. We're going to build something for that, but (laughs) I I like that. Um, Uh, 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 The Calm app has a similar thing. Like, how are you feeling today? And, and there needs to be Mm -hmm. that, but for the founder, uh, how are you feeling about the business right. today and, and and why, you know, that, that, that might, that and could be very, ins- and, it, it could be and, insightful. Yeah. And then tied to your goals. Like you mentioned, like, you know, maybe you have three goals and you have to attribute the score to one of the goals and then why, and then over time you can pick up trends and rationale, maybe link into your calendar and your CRM. So it pulls in data and how many hours are you spending doing X, Y, Z? Does that influence your, your sentiments really thinking on this, but, uh, yeah, might work. We'll see. Yeah, it, it make sure it pulls in your Stripe data too, <laughs> so you can see. You know, I was actually feeling better yes, of uh, a couple of months of ago, course. and sales were lower than they are today. What the hell? Yeah. Yes. Stripe, <laughs> Stripe, all the all the banking apps for sure. Yeah. That's probably like integration integration number one there. Um, well, Brian, you've taken a lot of time with us. I really appreciate you you sitting down. Before we jump. Is there anyone um, that's had a really large outside impact on you? And maybe it's your father. You mentioned he kind of pushed you into to being an entrepreneur. Is there, yeah, is there someone in your your past that has influenced you greatly? Yeah, I'll, an- I'll answer that two ways. Um, one, yeah, my dad. If my dad hadn't made me go mow my first yard, I'd probably be stuck in a cubicle somewhere, uh, or maybe working for a lawn mowing company or something. Man, I, I, there's no telling. So. I mean, that was a huge lucky break for me. I'm very fortunate. Um, and then the other thing is I'll take the opportunity to to answer this question with a, with a bit of kind of philosophy that I have around mentorship and the, and the, and the idea of asynchronous mentor, asynchronous mentorship. And, and I've, I have about 20 or 30 mentors 
who have who I've never met and they don't know who I am. But over the last decade, I have I have consumed every spoken word they've ever, ever put on the Internet, every podcast, every fireside chat, everything on YouTube, every blog post, every book. And I, I think these yeah. days you can you can seek out a like a mentor mentee relationship and do it asynchronously and punch way above your weight in terms of who you have access to. That certainly has been the case for me. Blue collar landscaping company operator now trying to build a marketplace in Nashville, Tennessee with no tech background. How the hell am I going to find a mentor to help me figure that out? Well, I can go to, I can go to YouTube university. I can go to any podcast and learn. Like I've listened to every spoken word that Travis Kalanick has ever said that, that I could access, you know, and, 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 I've learned a lot of great deal from him in terms of, of how they built Uber and how they got through those first five years and, uh, or Brian Chesky, uh, with Airbnb and, and the list goes on. These people don't know who I am, but, but they have mentored me over the last 10 years. And so I think that can be super powerful. Yeah. I have the same thing. I, Andrew Wilkinson is someone who's built a really successful consultancy called Metalab. And then yep. he's built that into a holding company where he acquires, other consulting companies and agencies and some SaaS products. And I've listened to dozens and dozens of podcasts he's been on. I've, I've read his, his sort of blogs in, in years past. And um, yeah, I think that that's a really great point. Powerful. Well, Brian, thanks so much again uh, for, for taking time. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. Um, and uh, maybe I'll make it down to, to Nashville one of these days. Right on, Devin. I hope you do. Thanks for, thanks for, for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. It's been a fun conversation. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time.